the open metaverse, from our perspective, is the real metaverse because you can then have ownership. Once you have ownership, you care to keep it because it's precious and meaningful to you. But if you don't own anything, then you actually don't care to protect it because you're just simply a guest. And I think this is the part why we are so excited about non-fungible tokens as digital property rights. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. Lately, true digital ownership in the form of NFTs and play to earn powered the rise of blockchain gaming and the key companies started from Asia, for example, XE Infinity in Vietnam and Yu-Gi-Oh! Games in Philippines. Today, I have Yatsu, chairman and co-founder of Animoca Brands, to discuss the evolution of the blockchain gaming industry and what it means for the rest of us looking into the crypto space. Yasu, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Before we start to discuss the key topics of the day, I am aware that you have an illustrious career without Blaze and Atari before Animoca Brands. Hence, my first question to you is, how did you start your career? Well, I mean, I started my career, you could say, in Vienna. I was born in Vienna to a family of musicians. And actually, I first studied music. And it was really because of music that I ended up getting into the, the sort of tech space. And, uh, you know, although I had a different kind of computer before, the actual professional career, so so-called professional career, was really when I started doing composition using the Atari computer because it had a MIDI port. And so I was able to basically play on the keyboard while music was coming up on the, basically the notes was coming up on the computer. The early versions of this type of software actually I, I developed. And I was a kid at the time, right? So I, I really did it just to help myself. And then I posted the software on a pre-internet service called CompuServe, which perhaps most of your audience may not remember or may not even know what that is, but it was kind of like a pre-internet type of bulletin board system. And through that, I got discovered by people who liked the software, who ended up sending me money uh, which was sort of random. and But back then it was kind of the practice. And Atari found me as well and said, hey, we kind of like what you built. Come come into our office and let's have a chat about what we might be able to do together. And that was uh, how it started. First of all, I grew up in Vienna. So just to be clear, there were, I think still today, there's very few Asian people. Certainly there were even less Asian people in, in Vienna. Uh, so I was definitely a minority. And I was probably around 13 years of age at the time. And still, I ended up getting sort of work with Atari. And that really happened because, you know, you couldn't find people who could program or understood the software. So it didn't matter that I was a minority. It didn't matter that I was uh, a child. I basically was able to just get on with what ultimately became a long-term career, but obviously start off in that career. And I found sort of my connection really in, I guess, the earliest forms of the internet, a kind of pre-pre-metaverse, if you will, uh, were, were, you know, I was interacting with people online that I never met, but who had criticisms and comments and, and other things to say about the software that I was building. And that, that's, that in itself is kind of empowering. So that was, that was sort of how it started off. Then ended up getting to, to Hong Kong through a series of events, started one of Hong Kong's very first internet service providers called Hong Kong Online. This was in 1993. Saw through that, started also a free email service provider, eventually started a company called Outblaze, which today is still there as a holding company, but really grew because it was probably one of the largest email companies in the world, eventually sold to IBM. We were also one of the largest, certainly in Asia, one of the largest open source deployments with Linux, uh, with basically running mostly Linux systems for all of our services. 
back then, you know, with, with our email services and so on. And, and then basically got into mobile gaming after that in 2010, 2011. That is starting Animoca brands, right? Well, it was the precursor of Animoca brands, which was Animoca without the brands, but mm. it was basically the beginning of that. And we were one of the top mobile game companies back in 2011. We had titles like Pretty Pet Salon, Star Girl, and those ones. Those were fairly popular in their day. And we had some experiences that led us towards thinking around decentralization and blockchain, because actually at one point we had 12 out of the top 20 apps in the app store. And then one day, Apple decided they didn't like that and removed all of our apps overnight. And we didn't really know the exact reasons why. We weren't really given a strong official reason, but we basically were just entirely deplatformed. This was, in, in, I think, in January 2012. And that sort of is an interesting example about what happens when you're basically existing on a platform on someone else's rules. And it took us two years to get back into the App Store. And, and more importantly, we got back into the App Store because Apple then decided they opened up an office in Hong Kong and also decided that maybe China was important as a market for them. So let's go and invest in, in them. And I mean, obviously the team that we worked with, which are, which are great, obviously knew nothing of the prehistory. But you know, it's, it's an unpleasant taste as to the circumstances that led to this. I see the roots of decentralization start off from this interesting experience. I want to ask you this. What are the key lessons you have learned throughout your career journey that you can share with my audience out there? Yeah, so we can talk about decentralization later. But I think the most, the, perhaps the biggest lesson perhaps out of all of this, and there's many, of course, right? Is that as long as you're building something with impact, and, well, actually with purpose, even more so than, than perhaps impact, because impact is maybe what you want to see happen. But purpose is why you do it, right? And if the purpose is greater than yourself, if it's something important, not just to you, but to everything else around the ecosystem that you feel like you're intent on building, then frankly speaking, whatever sacrifices you have to make on the way are not really sacrifices. Or maybe they are, but they're not, they're not expensive, right? They're not, they don't feel like heavy trade-offs because you know you're building for something greater. Right? And I think when you think of the history, certainly for Animoca brands as well, we have made many, many sacrifices that on the surface would almost look like potentially fatal ones, right? Certainly what has happened to us as a company. And yet here we are. And I think the reason we did that is because we had, at least at the time, a vision where we thought the world should go and a purpose that we felt that was greater. And that was one of digital property rights that essentially drove us to try to deliver the industry to, to where it could be potentially. So which comes to the main subject of the day, because we are going to be talking about Animoca brands, NFTs, digital ownership, and of course, uh, blockchain gaming and metaverses as well. So I just want to do a quick introduction. Animoca brands ranked in the financial time list of high growth companies for Asia Pacific in 2021, a leader in digital entertainment, blockchain and gamification. Animoca brands develop and publishes a broad portfolio of games, including the REF, and the Sand Token, original games, including the Sandbox, Crazy Kings, I like the F1, Marvel, WWE. And of course, you also have a very interesting portfolio of investments that includes Sky Mavis, who everybody would know, XC Infinity today, Dapper Labs, who's well known for CryptoKitties, and NBA Topshop, OpenSea, which is now, I think, the highest transaction for NFTs out there. So first of all, I want to congratulate you twice because the first I wanted... To, you have recently raised what is considered by the Chinese, because I'm a fellow Chinese as well, what is known as the luckiest Chinese number, 88,888,888 
for billion valuation as a unicorn, which includes Kingsway Capital and RIT Capital Partners, which is formerly the Rothschild Investment Trust. And two days back, I just read it, Animoca Brands have just raised $65 million at $2.2 billion valuation from well-known players. That includes Ubisoft, which is a well-known game maker, and Sequoia China as one of the, and of course, many other investors who partake in this round. How did that happen? <laughs> well, I mean, how it happened was, I guess, somewhat a circumstance of the market. But also, frankly, I think from our perspective, the inevitability of the direction of true digital ownership and the impact that it had. We started building in this space really almost four years ago, right, with a partnership with Dapper Labs that led us to an investment and in being the publishers of CryptoKitties. And with that, we also ended up making an investment in a small team in Vietnam, Sky Mavis. And we were the lead investor of Sky Mavis in 2019. <laughs> it was so difficult to raise money for them. And there were sort of funny stories around just how hard it was. Of course, difficult to imagine today because they're the biggest thing in blockchain games right now and really shaping the space. And of course, OpenSea. We also invested more recently in Yield Guild games. And you know, actually, we have over 100 portfolio investments in the NFT space outside of our own ownership and things like the Sandbox or Rev or Gaming. And so the fundraising result is really a result of, I guess, partially the results of our portfolio and the results of the business itself. For instance, whether it's F1 Delta Time or Rev Racing, we have quite a few people racing in the games right now in terms of, you know, as a kind of play to earn with Gamey, which is also part of the group. It's the number one polygon dApp, right? It's, uh, and it's probably one of the top four, if not top three you know, game dApps in the world right now, right? For instance. Uh, and then of course you have Sandbox, which is probably, at least from our perspective, the hottest metaverse land you can get. Uh, you know, you're not cool if you don't have Sandbox land in the NFT world. Snoop is there, the Smurfs are there, right? All the major sort of NFT collectors in the world, like Whale Shark you know, is there. They're all, they're all there in Sandbox, right? So all these projects that we're running and operating, plus all our portfolio, has I think led to the development of the initial value. And then most recently, the strategic raise, uh, which you know, was particularly interesting because Ubisoft, which is of course one of the most respected game companies in the world, and then also Gameville, come to US, which is also one of the biggest game companies, certainly in Korea, has, has also participated in a round. And to me, this is really just a way to bring in the right kind of parties to help grow the open metaverse, right? So when we think of fundraising, it's not just about the money, uh, which is frankly not the most important thing here, because as a business, we are actually doing fairly well. It's more about bringing the right kind of partners that can help grow the business, and frankly, also help influence and shape their thinking that they should be building open as opposed to building closed. I want to dive a little bit deeper, going back to Animoca Brands. What is the mission and vision of Animoca Brands as a company? So the vision for the company is really to deliver true digital property rights. And the purpose to deliver true digital property rights is to construct the open metaverse in one in which we all have ownership. But how do you do that? Well, the most important thing is that we have to first recognize that the most valuable resource on earth is no longer stuff that grows from the ground. Things like energy or cotton or like food, I mean, these are important, but they are no longer valuable in the way that they used to be because we have ways in which we can manufacture, produce them more efficiently or perhaps are more efficient in those resources. And so the construct of you know, the scarce resource has changed because it used to be because I owned this land, I had access to valuable resources that others couldn't have. Access became essentially one of those sort of privileged resources. But the most valuable resource on earth today is actually data. And the data, what's also very interesting about that is, is it 
doesn't come from the ground, right? It doesn't just, it's not because I own a piece of land, I suddenly have a lot of data because it comes from each and every one of us. So the data comes from the people, right? I mean, what is Facebook? Facebook is one of the world's largest data platforms. Who gives it the data that makes Facebook powerful? It comes from the people. And the big irony around that is that that data, which emerges from us actually, is from, from our point of view, actually the scarcest of resources because it is our time. Each and every one of us only has a limited time on earth, right? At the end of the day, whether we live to 100, 150, 120, whatever age it will be in the future, we will pass. So that means actually everything is scarce, it's rare. And whether we choose to spend it with our family, whether we choose to work and make some income, whether we choose to have fun interviews like this, that is our decision in terms of our giving of the time that we end up putting together, which is a form of data. And the other thing about data is, unlike many other resources, data is one that can really freely compose on top of each other to become even more powerful. And, and this is what happens happening in the platforms all the time. But even as we're having this conversation, we're actually sharing data. And as we share data, we make new kinds of data, basically knowledge out of this information. And then we see this also in a meeting that we have, or a professor that has been studying a topic and talked to many experts in the world for 30 years. His data gravity is very heavy because he has the most expert knowledge in that area. But we have a limit as humans because we can only interact and absorb so much information. You take that information and you give it to someone like a Facebook or an Amazon or a Tencent, actually what happens is that they amplify this knowledge of your data by a billion people every second, every step of the way, which means they have the best data gravity, the most powerful network effect, and are basically able to really influence the world as they have. And so they get to us to buy things that maybe we don't want to buy. <laughs> they know so much about us, they can do it. But the biggest issue is not the fact that they use the technology to offer us a service or maybe to try to extract value from us. The biggest issue is that we're actually giving them the data really for free. They refine the data and they sell it back to us in the form of advertising or retargeting. So we're living in an age of digital colonialism. Companies like Facebook are the imperialists of this age. We don't actually own anything that we do there. We are basically their serfs, but we don't know it, right? So it's almost like we're in the matrix, right? And we're, instead of sapping energy from our brains, they're sapping our data. And they basically derive all the knowledge and then become powerful. If you look at the top 10 companies in market cap today, they're all data companies. None of them are resource-based companies. And so this comes down to the mission, which is that how do we enable a future that is more equitable well, it has to mean that we have to give data to the people who actually created to the first point. They have to have data ownership. How do you get data ownership? Ah, okay, non-fungible tokens is that way. Because blockchain technology is essentially a public data layer, which is, doesn't belong to everyone, to anyone. Which means that who, whatever data is stored on the blockchain, like a non-fungible token, its provenance, its source of ownership, all of that belongs specifically to the end user who can claim ownership on this one or creates it. And therefore, from that perspective, the user actually has uh, full rights and ownership and therefore the benefits of digital capital. And quickly, just to close on this one, the open metaverse, from our perspective, is the real metaverse because you can then have ownership. Once you have ownership, you care to keep it because it's precious and meaningful to you. But if you don't own anything, then you actually don't care to protect it because you're just simply a guest. And I think this is the part why we are so excited about non-fungible tokens as digital property rights. Because once I own property, whether it's inside a game, 
whether it's inside a different economy or whatever it is, then actually I become a stakeholder and have a, an element in developing its success and an interest in protecting that system. Just like in the real world, when I own physical property, actually I care that my property is really mine and I care that I can pass it to my children or sell it to someone else. And as a result of that, I care for the institution that protects my ability to have this ownership, which means I probably care about democracy or I care about who is in power to ensure that I own that. We don't care about that in the digital world because we are renters. We don't own anything. And therefore we're willingly giving it up because we don't understand what it means. But the moment you have ownership, you will never surrender that ownership to someone who could take it away from you. You wouldn't do that in the real world. So why would you do that in the digital world if you actually have digital ownership? Right, so that's the big mission. So in your medium post toward the future economy, I think it's a letter to your shareholders or to the people out there who are fans of Animoca brands. You highlighted Animoca brands as one of the very first mainstream game companies that identify and acted upon two important opportunities in gaming presented by blockchain technology. And I think you dive very deep into what true digital ownership really mean in today's terms. And of course, then there's a second part, which is play to earn. Maybe to start, can you define what play to earn mean in the gaming industry today? So let's let's step back a little bit on sort of your digital identity here, because play to earn is a role of that. What blockchain ends up infusing into any of these systems is to essentially derive value and expose value and fairly distribute value in an unequal system, and gaming is an unequal system. It's unequal because of the construct of free-to-play gaming today, which is that only one or 2%, sometimes 3%, actually pay, and 97% don't pay anything, which basically means you have kind of a two-sided market where people who pay interact with people who don't pay. But in the game economy, of course, the problem is, is that those people who uh, play for free, they pay for entertainment and enjoyment, but actually they're the reason, a big reason, why there's value in the ecosystem for those people to unlock payments too. Because the ones who are paying, they do so because the community is large or is fun to play with or interactive. So in other words, the free audience that is inside the game creates a network effect that entices the people to pay money into a game. And it's a very successful business model. Gaming companies are making tons of money, just to be clear, right? None of them are struggling. So this is a very successful business model. The problem with this, of course, is that in the context of play to earn, is that currently all the people who spend the time to make the network valuable inside a game get zero for it. Every time you're playing in Fortnite, every time you're playing in Apex Legends or whatever awesome game you're having fun with, actually you get nothing for it. Yes, you get fun and entertainment and you get the social enjoyment and maybe social status, but actually you get nothing for it. And for the hours and hours you spend, Actually, what you're doing is you're making the game valuable. You're adding to the network effect. It is your time. Just like I said earlier, time is the scarcest resource on earth for you, certainly. So you're giving your valuable time for some enjoyment, but actually making the network more powerful. Why doesn't the network pay you for that? Now, in other business models out there, the people who spend their time to make a network valuable, they get rewarded for it. I mean, you know, I tried to explain this to a few people and they really struggled because they're like games that don't understand it. So I said, okay, it's like a nightclub. You have ladies night, right? <laughs> Why is ladies night free drinks for the women and for the men that have to pay? We don't have to go into detail of that, but the point is they're getting paid to spend time there if they so choose. So they are still being rewarded in some form or fashion to being there. The problem about games is 
you're not being rewarded at all. It's just social. That's it. But the problem is that the value that's generated is so large, it's lopsided. And so play to earn is one mechanism that basically really rewards the time that you spend inside the game. Now, there could be elements. For instance, if you're more successful, you might get more. But the whole idea is that no matter how successful you are, as long as you're contributing to the ecosystem, you're adding to the network effect. And when you add to the network effect, you ought to be paid something for it, however small that may be. So that's play to earn, really. And play to earn inside a game could be as simple as battling, could be as simple as, you know, the design depends on each game. But, you know, like for instance with Rev Racing, we have another element of play to earn where, you know, if you race, you can get a car. And there doesn't have to be a reward that has to be based entirely on a currency that you get. It could be also something non-fungible because we know that as you're racing and competing with other players, that you're still contributing value to the ecosystem. Nobody said that the car had to be worth thousands of dollars, but it's still something that is a, a token of appreciation that ends up having some value over time, which maybe you can sell or maybe you can use in, in a different kind of ecosystem. So all games effectively already have an element where they're trying to reward people inside the game, but it's all fun and entertainment and not based on any value. Play to earn basically allows you to get rewarded for the time you spend in games. You, you have spoken earlier that Animoca brands emerged from Animoca, the company, and then subsequently you needed to make a few strategic decisions, which also could be to take the company in different directions. I want to get your thoughts on what are the drivers that led you to identify these key trends earlier than most gaming companies out there? Because when we talk about blockchain gaming in three years ago, this is not something that is on everyone's radar. I think even thinking about XC Infinity sounds today, it sounds so obvious, but yet I think probably one year ago, people didn't think it was that obvious. So what are the drivers that led you to identify that this is where the industry is actually moving? I think with everyone or anyone who sort of observes trends, right? I think it has a lot to do with your own personal experience. I mean, some of it may seem logical, but of course, you think it's more logical for others because of the fact that they've gone through that experience. I mean, outside of the fact that I've been a lifelong gamer, you know, I used to play multi-user dungeons, right, months, and I was already a buyer of virtual assets back then, where I was basically buying sort of text-based swords. And, and for those who don't remember what a mud was like, there was no graphics. It was all text. It's like literally you type, go left, go east. And you literally, when you have to talk to someone, you say, say, da, 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 right? Like it was really that primitive. And yet we were playing those games happily. And I remember paying $25 for some virtual item back in the mud. And I think it was either in the late 80s or early 90s, but either way, it was like, I literally had to send a check. And then when it finally happened, we would meet at a designated time and come together and he would give me the sword. You know, it was like really very old school kind of way of doing it. So for me, having ownership in virtual assets and having a relationship of these assets in that manner was completely normal. For me, it was more like, why isn't this even more mainstream almost? Of course, I understood the reasons why, but emotionally, I felt attached to that kind of a future anyway. And so when blockchain came about, it was kind of like the aha moment. Like when crypto and like Bitcoin came about, I had an intellectual curiosity. But when non-fungible tokens came around, then it was really interesting for me because we're just like, wait a second, this could really alter everything. Gamers could actually really own their assets. Which gamer wouldn't love to own their assets if they actually really were able to and the consequences that come from that? The other thing, of course, is, is that it also, I think, depends on your background. So if you're a financially oriented person or if you come from trading or the finance world, 
then you might care about, about specifically tokens for fungible tokens because they trade, they have liquidity. Like a market trader, you care about that type of stuff. But when you come from different industries, whether it's the arts or music or gaming, typically you care more about culture, which is what most of the world goes around. And so non-fungible tokens really represented stores of culture. And these stores of culture is what excited everyone in the world where culture was more meaningful to them. Because when we engage with culture, we don't think of money as the first thing, right? We don't think of, you know, oh, I love BTS. How much money is it going to make me, <laughs> right? It's like, it's like, that's, that's not our relationship with culture. Or I love classical music. I love Bach. We don't think about the value it has to us in monetary terms. We think of the value it gives to us intellectually, enjoyment, how it makes us feel, right? That's culture. And there was no real way of storing and representing that culture in a permanent fashion in the digital world until non-fungible tokens came around. As Animoca Brains have been really early in your investments with OpenSea, Xe Infinity, YGG, Dapper Labs, who are behind CryptoKitties and NBA Top Shot, how do you decide to invest in them in an early stage? And what have you learned from these successful investments which have come of age this year with the NFT boom? So just to be clear, as much as we'd love to take credit for spotting winners, in 2018 and 2019, there were very few of us building. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, it was, so, so it was more like the, the same club of people who hung out. And frankly, I think we're the smartest people in the space trying to develop something. But really, the answers were not clear. If you look at the team at Sky Mavis, you know, wonderful group of people, great ideas. However, did they think it was going to pan out exactly this way? No, right? They went through an evolution. They built their own things. They struggled with their own systems. You know, in the earliest of days, Sky Mavis, for instance, built on another layer uh, called Loom at the time that, you know, basically disappointed them, which led them to develop their own chain called Ronin. But they went through those experiences as they tried to progress, you know, Axie Infinity to then lead them to the path where they are. And that's true for, for it's true for actually any startup, really. Uh, but really, in, in the earliest of days, it had really to do with the conviction of the space. And it drove so thinking in a few ways. One, who believes in this space and is really smart in what they're doing? Two, we cannot build all of this ourselves anyway as a company. If you want to really construct the open metaverse and give everyone true digital ownership, we got to do it together. Who can we fund and support that we can do it together with? And that basically informed of the way that we started making these investments and acquisitions, because again, it was very purpose-driven. We're like, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and we're going to help people grow into the space, because really part of it was also education. It wasn't just about putting money into someone who's built this before. I mean, you're not going to find someone who has built a blockchain game before. <laughs> it's, you're not going to find that. So you basically just have to really put faith in the team that can put it together and keep supporting them until they get to that point eventually. So that's kind of that approach. The market today is of course different because there's a lot more money in the space, like much more money. And therefore you have a lot more game five projects and a lot more sort of blockchain game projects that are coming out today. And so now I think we're entering a phase where very soon, you know, you have to start being a little bit more discerning how you make your investments because of the fact that there's so many people doing very similar things. But again, for instance, if you think about investing in marketplaces in 2018, <laughs> that's not that many really, right? So it wasn't actually very hard to identify who were the best marketplaces. Open Seas, when we, when we first started working with them and, and made the investment, we sold all of our first NFT drops on Open Sea. It just made sense. And for those who may not remember, 
2019, the most expensive NFT was our F1 Delta Time car, the Apex car, which is very controversial at the time because everyone, who would pay that kind of money for a virtual car? And we, we did that on the OpenSea platform, who provided the technology to do that. So it was very reminiscent, frankly, of when I first started Hong Kong Online in Hong Kong in 93. It was very reminiscent to how we built the open web back then as well. You know, we were in forums, we were chatting about how we could help each other, we're sharing code, there's open source. It was very collaborative as a model. The only difference here is that actually now we can have cross-participation because we could possibly have some equity or maybe in some projects, some of your tokens, or we could swap these tokens as well. So we both have a mutual interest in each other's success. So that was a series of things, how we ended up, I guess, identifying it. But really, as I, as I said earlier, it wasn't so much that we had a specific nose for, let's call it, it was a macro view, and then finding the people who were building from a macro perspective, much more than it was pinpointing a specific company. The industry was far too immature to be able to do that. Do you think that the few features, for example, decentralization, open, and demand and supply of scarcity lead to the fact that this is the blockchain gaming space is an idea that the time has come for this to happen? Because I remember the days when I was playing World of Warcraft, I would like to be able to transfer my magic sword from one platform to another, but that is not doable and people will have to trade it on eBay. And that is why this specific boom has just happened so quickly because people finally caught the idea that, that decentralization makes you, you're not no longer investing in companies, but you're investing in economies and it also helps you to find partners to build it successfully together. And that's why you can invest and yet build at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it's a combination of everything. When you think about, for instance, one of the reasons we ended up focusing on blockchain games as a means of getting adoption into blockchain for true digital ownership. Actually, what happened here was that we thought that gamers would be the audience that understands it best, just like your experience. You know, you may not fully understand the technology that sits behind it, but intrinsically you wished you could trade your assets because actually they should be yours, right? Or intrinsically you understood that the currency that you are earning inside the game, you would probably pay someone money for it if you could give it to you faster, because frankly, there is a trade-off between sort of time as well and value, right? And so these economic systems already exist inside games, but they're of course not real because of the fact that they're centralized and it's really, you're really renting. But people don't quite understand that, but they have a relationship with the assets of one of ownership. And so decades of people playing games like this from our perspective is one of, of almost training, if you will. So if the same concept emerged 30 years ago, technology, even if it was better, would probably not have caught on the way it has because people weren't as comfortable or you know, dealing with the ownership of digital assets of some sort, but today they are. I mean, you look at, you know, for those of us who have young children and you ask them, what do you want for Christmas? There's a high chance that they actually don't want anything physical. They just want something digital. And for them, that's the most valuable thing. And when you also think about, especially younger generations, what's important for them, how they're seen, it's what their digital identity is that's more important. Their status online, depending on their gameplay status or depending on the skin that they have that they've achieved, that is more important to them than having you know, the coolest fashion item in a physical world. So the idea of identity and the value of identity in the digital world has already become, in some cases, perhaps in most cases for the younger generation, more important than in the, in the physical world. So we are already entering that space. And people are already expecting that, you know, thanks to social technologies as well. Many of us crave more attention on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram 
then we actually crave for physical attention to be identified on the street or something like that. We probably don't even care about that. We just care if we have a thousand likes on our next post, right? These are the things that we now give more direct value to than we have, have done before. So yes, I, I agree that we've been trained towards this moment. Now, the decentralization part, though, is the part that is the more complicated one, because for most people, they don't really understand decentralization per se, because they don't even understand fully that data is centralized in its current construct. They just think of it as data. But decentralization is the underpinning of this, because unless the, the data store is decentralized, you actually cannot fully control the ownership of that asset. And therefore, someone who has the central control of that data can completely and always change rules on you, which they do in games every season. Oh, we don't like this. Let's change the balance. Oh, let's not, let's remove it. And so, so there's zero value. And we think game companies are very have a very exploitative relationship with their customers as a result of this. And yet, we've been also trained to accept that. And somehow, not only trained to accept that, someone to say, oh, yeah, this is a good thing that we're rebalancing the game this way. Why should it be? I mean, sure, maybe some things are grossly ineffective. But as we can see, and as time goes on, a game that was well-balanced becomes imbalanced because they have to start tweaking around with mechanisms to make money. And, and that basically messes up the game balance as well because they don't have a business model that actually is sustainable from, from a value standpoint because they have to always do it in an inflationary manner. Because if they don't devalue the assets you have, then they can't sell you anymore, right? Which basically means they don't make any money. So, so the entire business model wasn't designed for something that was long-term sustainable, which from our perspective is also the reason why games have a short life cycle for the most part. I think there's this theme that keeps coming up with all the evolution of Animoca brands, your investments, as such, is the concept of the metaverse. How do you define the concept of the metaverse and what are the key ingredients that constitute what a successful metaverse look like? For example, to me, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is a pretty successful metaverse, but yeah, it's still close within its own, the IP of Disney as such. So the metaverse you just described, whether it's MCU or even Facebook, is Disneyland. It's fun to be there. You can hang out and you can enjoy the environment, but then you leave. And you, know, you don't have ownership. You're not expected to be in there because you're going to be money or you can actually have a living there. You're expected to be in there to spend your time, to spend money, right? And to, to have some enjoyment. So these are, it's a, it's a meta experience, you could say, but it is not one that we consider the true metaverse. Because like in the real world, we go to Disneyland for make-believe. We go there to have fun. But then we leave Disneyland to go back to the real world to deal with the real issues. And so for us, the real metaverse is the open metaverse because the open metaverse is the one where you have ownership, just like we have in the real world, where you have sovereignty over your own data, where you have actual sort of the ability and your own freedoms to choose with what you want with the assets and items that exist in the open metaverse. And most importantly, and this is why we think the open metaverse is the parallel, is, is a paradigm that allows for it to be long-term sustaining, is it because you have ownership in your assets and the assets in the open metaverse, it serves the interests of the majority. The problem about closed metaverses, whether it's a Facebook, whether it's an Epic, whether it's whatever, ultimately serves the minority. And any institution that serves a minority has a long-term problem, which is that you're not serving the interests of the actual community of people that you're supposed to be serving in time. 
And maybe it starts off quite nicely, but in the mid to long term, as we have seen so many times, right, the institution breaks down because it needs to protect the interests of a minority, which once becomes decoupled with the interests of the majority, no longer is in sync. And by the way, this is not just a problem in games. It's a problem in the world. Land ownership, capital versus labor, right? you have this problem because the participation isn't one where the majority has an interest in this. And in the data paradigm, that's even more apparent because the only people who benefit from the ones who have the data are either the people who work there, obviously the shareholders or the founders, which is an imperfect relationship because if you wanted to have this enjoying the success of the data land, you have to at best be a shareholder in someone like a Facebook or an Amazon. And yes, you've seen some success, but it doesn't really give you a voice. It doesn't really give you a way in which you can shift and direct it. And it's really only available to the class of people who can buy these shares. But when you live in a country or you live in a city, you might own a property. That doesn't make you a shareholder of the city, but it does make you a stakeholder. It does give you a voice and it gives you a way in which you can act on. And because everyone else around you happens to also own property, you come together to serve the best interests of the community because you have to protect it. This is the thing that a fake metaverse cannot do because the ownership doesn't belong to the users, even if they pretend to do so and say, oh yes, under these terms of service, you can use it this way and that way. That's not ownership. That's still rental because they have the right to take it away from you at any time. What is the institution that protects you to do that? We think that data ought to be a human right. But the problem is that you know, there is no construct with this. And for the world of you know, governments and politics to fully embrace that, I think it's a, it's a little further away. So if the government institution is unable to protect our data sovereignty, then we need another system. And that is the open metaverse through the distributed ledger, through blockchain, because no single party owns it. And therefore, my ownership in this data construct is secure and permanent and immutable. And so in that construct, when you have sufficient weight inside your own data, which is in the distributed ledger, not owned by anyone, in time, what will happen is, is that the big platforms have to eventually acquiesce to access this because none of the users are going to be using a platform where they will be surrendering all their assets to be there. I mean, if you own a house, you're not going to swap ownership of the house to visit Disneyland. <laughs> why, why, why would you do that? But that's what we're doing right now because we don't understand it. And, and I think the, the thing is, like in the digital world, the context of if you own a piece of land in Sandbox, you know, the most expensive pieces of land are now worth over a million dollars US. You are not going to surrender that easily to someone unless you know it's protected. Every person who owns a board Ape or CryptoPunk, he's not going to be giving his assets to a platform that has the ability to take it away from you. So that's what's important here, right? And, and that's what's real because the reality comes from the fact that you own it. There are interfaces that people talk about VR and AR and everything. Yes, those are gateways. Those are experiential layers. But fundamentally, that is not what's important. What's important is that you own your data. So will NFTs or gaming tokens from the play-to-earn economies be interoperable in the future from your point of view? In Animoca brands, you have things like F1 Delta Time, where it's a racing game for players to compete for like sand games and ref tokens and even the sandbox where as you talk about virtual land, building virtual land, building on top of virtual land, building economies as such. First of all, to understand non-fungible tokens is to understand that they are openly composable. The real NFTs are openly composable and can have layered experience on top of it in a permissionless fashion. So one way to think of NFTs is like open source. 
right? At the end of the day, they are pieces of data, right? Just like open source, you have some code, it starts off with some code. Then someone else layers some more code on top of it, and then more people layer code on top of it. And at the end of the day, maybe the original source code you know, that you put in might be used in such a tremendous way that you couldn't possibly imagine, but it was the foundation of something great. And that, by the way, is the representation of data gravity in the form of, of open source. And there's also the reason why open source has become unassailable. Even the largest of companies have to use open source. And there's also the reason why a small five-person company can compete with a giant of a company because they have access to all of that open source technology that's available to them. This was, needs to happen with open digital assets, right? If you have a digital asset that has layered experiences on top of it, then essentially those assets become more valuable. And so the way to do that though, is that it's permissionless, meaning that you can take any asset today that's an NFT and use it in your game. You don't need permission. So for instance, if you want to provide a service on top of Sandbox land, if you want to do it with a rev racing item, you can do that today. We can't stop you. And this is actually what happens today in the real world. I own a car and someone wants to become a driver for that car. They don't have to go to Tesla and say, am I allowed to be a driver, please? You just have to talk to the person who owns the car and say, I would like to be your driver, or I can hire you as a driver. Or for the people who create baby seats for cars, did they seek permission from Volkswagen or from Tesla to make baby seats? They just made it, right? Because they saw a market for it. And it's completely independent, meaning that they've already openly composed on assets simply because people own them. In other words, the assets or the content, if you will, has become the platform, which by the way, is also the reason why this entire industry is going to completely reshape and disrupt classic distribution models. Because we used to go to places to discover things. And now we can discover things because of what we own. You see this already today when you own luxury watches, when you own a certain kind of car, that suddenly you a kind of membership, right? You, send, you, you enter a club where people invite you or offer you things because of the fact that you might represent a customer of a certain type or an audience or an idea of, of some sort. Those, those come to you because you have ownership of these things. And on the blockchain, everyone knows you know, whether you own a CryptoPunk or whether you own a Sandbox land and can actually already openly solicit you. So the distribution model itself, I think, will be completely flipped upside down from where it is today, where frankly, I, we have content gates. Because right now, Spotify actually decides what music you should listen to, really, right? Apple actually decides what you should be downloading. Even though you may look elsewhere, when you go to the front page of Apple, they're very heavily trying to direct you what you should be liking. And that's the business model. And the same goes for Steam. And the same goes, frankly, for every centralized uh, distribution network. So uh, these assets are already interoperable today. And maybe what's difficult to imagine is that much of the interoperability hasn't yet happened. And therefore, you can't fully comprehend it. But it's already possible today because they're permissionless. So do you think the Ready Player One will where the current play-to-earn economies will start meshing together with the AR augmented reality or virtual reality in the future? So first of all, I think meshing of items in the universe is, is, is well on the way, meaning that there's going to be metaverses constructed, if not already, that allow for the interaction of 20 or 30 different assets around the world to mesh together and do that type of stuff already. To me, that is a very natural thing. And the creativity and the imagination is the only limit as to what might happen in this particular metaverse. So that's, that's, that's the first point. The second one, when you talk about AR and VR, really to me, those are experiential layers. So are they absolutely critical for the open metaverse to succeed? I don't think so. I think they are very important 
for us to enhance the experience. But is the, is the fact that we're all going to be wearing VR goggles online and interacting this way? I don't know that that's important. Because when you take a look at, for instance, how people play games today, 2.7 billion people in the world play games. And when they play games, the feelings are pretty real, right? The emotions are real. The engagement is definitely real. And did it need to have a VR goggle to feel that way? No, right? So from my perspective, you can be as deeply engaged into, into a metaverse without having the need to be completely plugged in. When our children are playing Roblox or when they're online playing games with their friends, it's as real as, uh, as any other. Sometimes, particularly the gaming guys, sometimes are critical of this because they feel like, well, nobody would play a game like Axie Infinity because the graphics doesn't look that great or something like you know, Sandbox that looks kind of blocky. But you know what the two most popular games in the world are? It's Roblox and Minecraft. These are the two most popular games in numbers of users. Bigger than Apex Legends, bigger than Fortnite, bigger than Call of Duty. So clearly, the visual acuity and, and graphics quality is not the reason you're playing these games. It's the fun part, right? <laughs> As we are all gamers. It's the fun. Yes, it's fun. It's social. It's rewarding in a different way. It's, uh, it's who else is there, right? It's frankly, it's the network effect of that ecosystem, right? That, that draws you to it. It's like that in the real world too. You know, we're drawing to places or to environments, not necessarily because they have all the glitz or because they have the best things. I mean, some of us love eating in restaurants that are very small or very homey. And we don't always want to have five-star meals or three-star meals. We don't always want to have caviar and foie gras for dinner. I mean, right? some of us maybe don't want that at all. The point is just that we, we crave for experiences that are sometimes simpler than we think for the simple pleasures out there. And gaming is another form of an experience layer. And honestly, just having great high-quality graphics isn't the only thing. It's, it definitely works for a lot of people, right? So we're not saying don't do it at all, but it's just an interesting data point that the two most popular games in the world, number one and number two, are the ones who have probably some of the worst graphics out there in comparison to the competition. I want to come back to the beginning of the conversation as this conversation is about Animoker brands. So my final question to you is, what does great look like for Animoker brands in a decade's time? Animoker brands is about constructing the open metaverse. So, you know, we aim to make many, many more investments to help build that because we think that the way that we're able to help build the open metaverse is to invest in the builders that can help make it happen as long as they build open. And then we as Animoca would end up sharing in the network effect of the growth of the open ecosystem. And of course, we're building our own businesses as well that can help and participate. But more importantly, none of the companies and sort of businesses that we're building is intended to be ones that we fully own at the end of the day, because we also aim to decentralize everything that we're building, meaning that everything we do will go completely to distributed ownership towards its players and its communities, because we want to make sure that the majority has an interest in, this, in its success. And so for us, what success would look like down the road is essentially a world that is well in the way, if not already, fully decentralized, that people own their data and that people build and compose on top of it. And as a result, new companies and businesses will emerge in all these places because, because of the fact that you have that freedom to build on top of others. It will also mean probably the end of the centralized platforms and the data walls. And certainly that's what we're hoping for which means that they have to reconstruct themselves in their thinking in order to survive. 
So we think the whole Web3 movement is going to completely alter this landscape that we have today. And for Animoca, the success would come from the fact that we have a stake in many areas of this and that we benefit and share in the network effect because of our exposure in the field, which is also why we don't just invest in equity and in tokens. We also have a lot of NFTs. You know, and it's like the equivalent of if we end up helping to you know, build Singapore or Hong Kong, and if we end up owning 10 or 20% of the, the property in those cities, that's not a bad outcome. You know, we don't have to own it. In fact, the fact that we don't own it and have maybe a significant stake in it, but not a controlling stake, is perhaps making it more valuable than before. I, I give people this example of, well, you know, the Queen of England, even though she no longer rules Great Britain, she actually is still pretty well off. Right. And, and it comes from the fact that she has sufficient assets, of course, but she is no longer actually the one who really runs the country. And I think that's actually healthier because, again, in this particular case, it serves the majority, not the minority. Yeah, so I really look forward to the future, the decentralized, open and economies where we can all be part of the Web3 movement. I'm definitely sold on it. And I'm sure you as a front runner of this is also sold onto it. So I would like to close with the conversation by asking two just short questions. The first is any recommendations that have inspired you recently? I think everything that's happening right now in the NFT space, when you take a look at, in particular, I spend a lot of time on sort of Twitter, reading up and looking at what other people are commenting in the NFT space, I find all of them inspiring. And so it's not so much a book or a movie or something per se, but it's the daily interactions you know, when you're engaging with the NFT communities, when you're buying something, when you're participating, when you're hearing what they have to say, how it's changing their lives, whether it's players in the Philippines or whether it's artists or photographers that have seen new ways in which they could make money and actually change their lives, right? To me, that's inspiring. And for us, it's kind of like the fuel that makes it clear what our purpose really is. And so that part really is uh, the driving our motivation forward, both for myself personally and as a business. My last question, how do my audience find you? So the easiest thing to find me is on Twitter, at YSIU. I mean, I have a Medium uh, as well, which uh, has the same handle. But generally speaking, I am most mostly active on, on Twitter. Uh, and so if you're interested, come follow me there and engage over there. You can definitely Google the podcast through Analyzed Asia. You can definitely find us on Twitter, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or everywhere. It would be better someday. It would be a decentralized podcast platform, of course. Yasu, many thanks for coming on today and share with me this hour of your quality time and I really benefited from the conversation. I look forward to hear more stories from you on the Open Metaverse with Animoca Brands the next time round. Thank you so much. Run it, run it, run it.